Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com. We've been on a bit of a podcast hiatus, but we're excited to be back, and there's going to be a slew of upcoming podcasts that we're really excited about. But part of the reason that we haven't done a new podcast in a while is because we lost a podcast, and I've basically been in mourning over the whole thing. Somehow the file of my conversation with park icon Tom Wallish got corrupted, and after a whole lot of effort trying to salvage it, we had to call it gone. This is massively disappointing because it was an outstanding conversation, one of my favorites that we've ever done. Tom, it turns out, is not only a park legend and one of the best to ever do it, He's a really smart, really interesting guy. So I've spent more time than I care to admit walking around in a daze and switching from being furious to shocked and to straight up depressed. But the good news is that Tom and I are going to be talking again very soon, and I'm excited for all of you to hear round two of our conversation. But before we get to that, this week we are talking to my good friend Paul Forward, who I've been meaning to get on the podcast forever, since he very well might be the most interesting man in the world. He totally hates it when we say that, by the way. Paul is a lead heli guide for Chugach Powder Guides in Girdwood, Alaska. He is also a doctor, a general practitioner, who works a lot in the Arctic village of Kutzbayu, which is north of the Arctic Circle. Basically, Paul practices medicine for about three quarters of the year, then he stops practicing medicine and starts guiding heli skiing for CPG. And in addition to all that, Paul is one of our senior reviewers here at Blister, as well as being a bow hunter, an absolute gear whore, a lover of big missions, and a hater of millennials. Well, just kidding. Not really. So in this conversation, we talk about Paul's background, the life of a heli guide, and the new program that Paul is starting this spring, a course on backcountry medicine. And of course, Paul and I talk a bit about some of the new gear that he and I are currently reviewing. Paul and I have a lot of ground to cover here, so let's go ahead and get started with our conversation with the most interesting man in the world. Paul Forward, how are you? Hey, I'm good, Jonathan. How are you? I'm good, man. Um, Where are you? I'm at my house in Girdwood, Alaska. Okay. And um, it's in the evening. It's the evening there, right? Yeah, it's almost 8 p.m. Lately, I've been talking with a lot of people in different portions of the world, so I just try to kick off the conversation with um, like getting the correct like time of day and actual day. Um, so in this case, we're we're just a couple hours apart. So you know that's nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Despite the the disaster of daylight savings, um, it's uh, it's seven forty nine in Alaska, and it's still light out. Okay. <laughs> um. So. Yeah, we, um, first of all, I can't believe that it's taken this long to get you your own solo appearance on the Blister podcast. We, you did, you did get in on our like group, uh, our group discussion, gear discussion down in New Zealand, um, back in last August or September or whatever, but, uh, man, your first time and you, you know, I don't know if you know this. You actually were the person I think who like literally introduced me to podcasts in general. <laughs> Do you remember this? Yeah, yeah. In the, the drive <laughs> to and from Darfield to Craigie Burn, I think we talked about it a bit. I was I was pretty excited about podcasts at that time. Still am. Yep. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, that was like four years ago, five years ago, something like that. Um, so anyway, here we are. It's kind of all come full circle. And now <laughs> you are starring. You, you know, this was a good thing. You, you planted the seed, introduced me to the entire genre of podcasts, and here you are. Yeah. Um, I think <laughs> really you probably had a lot more interesting stuff than talking to me to deal with in your podcast. So, Well, as, as our listeners are going to find out, we... Um, we sometimes jokingly refer to you as the most interesting man in the world. And so part of not that now, now the pressure's on, right? Like now you have to live up to this, but, uh, you, you, oh, do. I will not live up to that. <laughs> but that's what the most interesting man in the world would do, right? It, he would of course deflect any insinuation, um, that he was the most interesting man in the world. So you do have a, a slightly different, um, sort of life path, I think, than a lot of people. And so we, we want to talk a bit about that. Um, <clears throat> but in addition to the fact that you uh, introduced me to podcasts, um, one other kind of interesting thing is how you and I met. <laughs> and, uh, and in fact, and this kind of is related, I get asked a lot, like, you know, how, how do how do you select reviewers or how do people get to review, you know, for blister? And, um, I guess I'm just going to be talking here for a minute cause I love this story and it's going to be slightly embarrassing to you, but, uh, you and I met, <laughs> we were, I, we were doing our first blister review trip in the, in the Southern hemisphere. I was down there with, um, Will Brown and, a, and a Jason Hutchins and, and, uh, you happened to be there just with some friends, right? Um, from uh, from the Jackson area or something? Oh, yeah. I, I used to go down there every year Okay, uh, for as long as like two months at a time. And I think that was my third or fourth trip down there. And I had met up with different friends throughout the trip. But yeah, I was with some okay. friends. One who, who they basically one was from Colorado, one was from Washington. Okay. And <clears throat> so our groups, there was a we had, there was a mutual acquaintance in your group. And so we kind of overlapped and skied a few runs together. And, uh, the, the only thing I, and this was August, 2011. And the only thing I remember about you from that trip is we'd skied some face. I don't remember what the line was and a bunch of us were standing at the bottom and you just came nuking down hot. And I think yeah. you were on a pair of maybe, were you on like Praxis protests? No, uh, so a couple details here, Jonathan. <laughs> so first of all, it was 2012 because I didn't go in 2011. Oh, that's right. It was 12. I okay. went okay. 06, 07, 08, and then I had a little hiatus, but I was definitely there in 12. Okay. And uh, I was on I was on Praxis skis. I was on ca uh, kind of a custom pair of backcountries. Okay. With, with uh, tech bindings? No, with Solomon no? bindings that I oh, had not no. myself. And using the... Uh, binding freedom inserts okay um for dinafits and sths and but you're right about the latter part the run was the lower part of um oh i'm forgetting it was like mercurio or something or yeah. something over uh, <clears throat> gears left side uh, off the marte and uh it was uh, yeah I didn't. I don't think I even knew they were chatting with you guys, or there was anybody else there. But I was definitely skiing really fast. And the part I think you're getting to that's really yep. funny <laughs> is that this is, right only, as I, this is the only part yeah. I care about. I don't care about all the yeah. other details. 
Yeah, yeah. The whole point of the story is, is that right as I was coming up to you guys, going at a pretty good clip, yep. I, uh, I kicked off my downhill ski, like right in the belly of the turn. It just shot down the mountain with, I mean, a long ways away. And I think I came just careening into you guys on my inside edge, going really fast, yep. and somehow didn't kill anyone that was there, or myself. Right. And it it was definitely a spectacular crash. And I just was like, who the hell is this guy? Yeah, I was I was definitely skiing, uh, what would be like the nice way to say it, faster than conditions warranted. Yeah. And that's... <laughs> yeah. So then, anyway, that, that was about it. I don't think you and I talked too much because we groups kind of parted ways like shortly thereafter. And we probably just wanted to get away from the insane guy that just exploded at the bottom of runs. We were probably scared. Yeah, that was, that was a red flag for sure. <laughs> like I, if, when I see that kind of thing now when I'm evaluating skiers to go skiing with, I like definitely think, like, oh, man, that guy is loose cannon. I do not right. want to ski with a guy like that. Right. So but you're 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 wounded for sure than thinking that. Okay. So then like I don't know, it was some weeks and maybe a month or two after the trip, um, you sent me an email and you're like, Hey, this is Paul and you were real nice. You were like, Yeah, I don't know if you remember me and I was like, Of course I remember you. You were the dude that almost <laughs> killed all of us. Well, uh, I think we chatted at that weird uh I'm going to call it a fashion show, and you know oh, what I'm talking no, about. I do know what you're talking about. But I'm oh, not yeah. going to elaborate on that at all. Yeah. But I think we talked at that um, event. And uh, and then, yeah, I sent you an email because yeah. I thought it might be kind of fun to get involved in Blister. And yeah. I said, basically, as I recall, I said, hey, you guys um, do cool stuff. I've learned some stuff, learned some interesting stuff from your site and from your reviews. And I have this backpack that I think is pretty cool. It doesn't get much attention, and I think you guys should put it up on your site. And here, I think I might have sent you my review with that initial email, or maybe shortly thereafter. No, and <clears throat> now we're done with the embarrassing stuff, and this is all just going to be kind of how awesome you are. But um, ah. no, because no, I remember I did my kind of standard reply of like, oh, yeah, of course I remember you, and I left out the part like because you almost killed me. Um, right. <clears throat> and then I, but what I did was the like, kind of standard like look you know these reviews are really hard and we you know they're kind of long form and they're sort of a pain in the ass to do well and so like it it can be kind of a hard thing and it's not everybody's cup of tea and so I did all this like qualifying um basically so when you sent the review I I already could be like yeah thanks but no thanks sure and yep. then you turn in the review, and I swear, I just was like, oh, my God. And everybody can still read this review. It's still on the site. Um, it's, the, <laughs> it's the Mystery Ranch Blackjack, right? Yep. And <clears throat> I thought it was one of the best audition reviews we'd ever gotten. And, and then, again, sorry to go on about this, but I kind of was always looking forward to, like, rehashing this story with Paul. But, like, you'll then kind of go on as you learn more about who Paul is and what he does, like, why maybe it wasn't, shouldn't have been a big surprise that he wrote a really smart review about, um, uh, about an Avi bag. And, uh, anyway, the rest is history um, <laughs> from there on. And, and, in fact, here's another f fun fact that probably only you and I care about. You and I have actually never hung out, like, in the United States. 
right? Oh, interesting. Yeah, aside from like LAX, yeah. Aside, <laughs> oh, you're right, LAX. We have LAX. <laughs> but, but in actual hangout, yeah. it's that first Argentina trip, and then what? New Zealand for the next four years in a row? Yeah, yeah, New Zealand for, uh, for the last the past four years, yep. Yeah. So, okay, so I guess it's like you're my... You're like my best friend that I've never hung out with in the United States outside of LAX. <laughs> Quite the qualifier. Right, right. So um, anyway, that's, that's, that's the Paul Forward. That's the, uh, that's the origin story, um, I guess, uh, for, for Paul and Blister. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, man, we've, we've had, we've had a few... I was hoping you'd say origin <laughs> you were hoping well we're gonna get we'll get to a little bit more of your actual sort of origin story the uh the formation of oh. the most interesting man in the world um so okay oh, uh, enough of enough of that stuff but um <clears throat> so you um you've been living in alaska a long time right um that's right I, yep okay um <clears throat> and so talk to me a little bit about that like when when did you start skiing? When did you start really getting into this stuff? Um, let's start there. Well, my, my family moved to Alaska when I was in elementary school, mm-hmm. and my family was pretty active in like everything. Kind of revolved around outdoor activities. My dad was in the Forest Service because he wanted to be in the woods and outside all the time. And uh, I had two younger brothers, Andrew, who you've talked to before on this, and who does reviews for us. Um, mm-hmm is my youngest brother, and that was kind of all our obsession forever was just outdoor kind of recreation. Um, not as on the ski side, you know, it's a pretty expensive sport, and uh, it just wasn't something that we, we, like, lift surf skiing wasn't something that was a big part of our family culture, but at pretty early age, like, by the time I was probably, like, oh, I think maybe, like, 13 or 14, um, I developed this obsession with being, with backcountry skiing. I didn't really know what that meant, but I found some, uh, I think it was maybe Kuwar was the magazine that was a thing back then. And then later on, um, backcountry magazine. And uh, I started just reading everything I could find on it. Cause I didn't really know anybody that did that, but I had some friends that were pretty avid skiers and it kind of led to telemarking, um, on leather boots and skinny gear and doing lots of stupid stuff around my parents' house. So I didn't really know how to properly ski. So a lot of just adventure skiing around the mountains, around Eagle River, which are, are really cool mountains. And um, and then gradually over the years, long story shorter, I ended up skiing a whole lot on a regular basis and uh, started, you know, getting normal ski equipment. And then eventually was able to start buying lift tickets and uh, actually start hammering out a lot of more than like three runs a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I had some pretty sketchy gear back then. I had Volley snake skins, which were a terrible piece of equipment. I had uh, some of the some like old black diamond ascension skins that were oh god, I, I won't go into all that stuff. But I had some pretty funny stuff back then, and a lot of leather boots. A lot of leather boots, really? Yeah, are, they make, are you like seventy years old? No, but they were cheap and they were available, and uh, you could get them in the REI attic or other places, and they fit in three-pin bindings or Riva 2s. Some people out there who listen to this will probably know what I'm talking about when I say Riva 2s and, and uh, old Wale cable bindings, but there's some, yeah, anyway, that was a start, and then eventually got normal ski equipment down the road, and um, 
most of my skiing has been in Alaska for, for most of my life, but I've traveled a fair bit for it. Yeah, you have traveled a fair bit. Um, but the focus, I guess the point is the focus has always kind of been on backcountry skiing, although I d- definitely have done a bunch of, you know, big season pass years skiing ski resorts. So that's the only way to really become a decent skier is to ski a whole lot of days at a ski area. Yeah. And <clears throat> how long was your telly phase? This was a long phase that you finally yeah, gave up sure. or Oh yeah, no, like uh from age 13 till you know, really I was still mostly telemarking it until I was like 30. So that was like 17 years of it. And I, I'm 37 now, so um I mean I started I got my first Dinafits I think 10 years ago. But I was okay. still telemarking a lot, like like inbounds, especially after that. Okay. When did you like? Did you like ever officially leave the the telemark fold? Oh, I started doing it a lot less, like increasingly less once I got Dina Fitz for ski touring. <laughs> they just for all the reasons we talk about in our reviews, they're just that's just a great technology for ski touring compared to anything else out there, including the best telemark touring bindings, at least the ones that don't use DinaFit toe pieces anyway. And so um, once I started doing that, I felt like I've always kind of been obsessed with doing things, I don't know, with like doing things technically correct. And mm-hmm. so I, um, I solicited a lot of advice and free ski lessons from my friends who had grown up ski racing and ski raced in college. And when I, get, when I started getting on ski touring gear and it seemed like I needed to spend more and more time skiing inbounds on alpine gear to really cover that out and learn you know learn how to make a strong turn and so it was there's some pretty telemark side to just alpine skiing like i'd say right now i'm a long ways into my season i've skied i don't know if i've skied 100 days yet this year but i've skied a lot this year and i haven't telemarked yet so i think last year i made it out telemarking maybe one or two days at alieska and never toured on it so okay there you go so you're kind of retired yeah yeah I, although just tonight on my to-do list was to mount up a pair of skis telemark binding so maybe <laughs> i'll maybe i'll do it some more it's still fun yeah that's what i hear <laughs> <laughs> okay so let's let's go ahead and i guess get to this part um where um you are a heli guide for Chugach Powder Guides, and when when did that sort of become a thing? Like when? First of all, I guess when did did you start getting on a heli? Um, you know, you fell in love with helis, and then sort of got sucked into the guide community. Or, you know, I think so. That's I guess the question for you slash How the hell does somebody become a heli guide? Well, the first part of the question, I can tell you how I ended up doing it I, I don't know if i have a good answer for how someone go, should go about starting to work as a heli ski guide yeah my story did not involve helicopters prior to me working here i had a good buddy in valdez i used to go down there and ski a lot and actually he's another buddy that i initially met in las Lanias, honestly hmm. who um for a few years was kept telling me like hey you should think about doing this it's a really fun thing you get to ski a bunch of cool stuff and I, a couple times I kind of saved up and I was going to go ski a couple kind of objective things with him in Valdez, but we didn't pan out for weather the, the times I went down there to do it, to do the, the lines we wanted to ski. And so I never got in a helicopter uh, at all. And then 
as uh, I finished uh, my residency, which, which you mentioned earlier, I'm a physician. I, I finished residency. I was still skiing a lot. I was skiing, I don't know, I think pretty close to 100 days a year as a resident. Most, you know, half ski touring, half the resort probably. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had all these buddies that over the years had started, you know, buddies from whitewater kayaking and buddies from backcountry skiing who had a lot, some of them have become kind of core guides that you got better guys, just kind of the nature of our community. And, and CPG is a little different than a lot of, I think pretty different than a lot of heli ski operations in Alaska, at least where most of the guides are year round residents of the community and of Alaska. And so everybody kind of knows everybody in the community. Right. And so a couple of them had mentioned to me a few times, like, Hey, you should think about doing this. We think you might be a good fit. Um, one of my buddies in particular was, um, he definitely pushed pushed on me, and I think he mentioned it to like the the lead guy at the time and the manager, and said, "Hey, you should bring this guy on." And so it was actually, as I recall, it was at a New Year's party down here in Girdwood, and you know we were drinking and having a good time at New Year's. And uh, my my good friend Henry, who's um, the lead guide at CPG at that time, said, "Hey, we've been talking about you. You should come to training this year." And uh, I, I wasn't really sure if, you know, if it was because we were partying and having a good time or if it was, um, if he was sincere about it. But I think I'd contact him later and he said, oh, no, you should, you should come. It'd be pretty cool to have you come to training and we'll see where, see where it goes. And so um, I got the invitation to training. I think I was, I can't remember for sure, but I was like one or two, one of maybe one or two people who were um, like new that year. You know, the company has pretty low turnover. And so... Um, so I wasn't really sure what was going to happen, but through a series of events, I, I got to um, start guiding pretty early on. I got to start working the snowcat right away. And then after, boy, I, looking back at the dates, it wasn't more than a few weeks. Uh, some really fortunate things happened for me that I was able to start heli-guiding quite a bit, basically, that first season. And uh, they were happy. I was happy. The people were happy. And uh, that was five, five years ago. Okay. That was five years ago. Okay. Yep. Yep. That was five years ago. And it was, uh, uh, it was super fun. I had, I had a blast. I mean, there's a lot of things about it that are, that are hard and that can be scary, but it was, it was really fun. And it's part, a lot of the fun part is the people that come here to ski or there's just a lot of really awesome people that come up here to ski with us. And, uh, and the, the guide staff, the company is just, you know, it's like a family. We're, we're super close. It's a lot of really good friends. And so we, we, we have a good thing going on here for sure. So talk to me then, I mean, you, you mentioned the doctor bit. So what's your, well, I kind of know, but tell me about your, your, your schedule. So right now you're kind of in the thick of, of guiding, right? What did you say? You you told me, um, you had, I can't remember 12 or 20 straight days. Yeah, Um, we're in this massive high pressure right now here in alaska and so it hasn't snowed in three weeks basically and uh i have been heli ski guiding for i think i've guided 19 of the last 21 days and i was guiding quite a bit prior to that like um, you know pretty regularly prior to that too so but this last stretch was in the last seven straight of you know kind of bell to bell skiing with a a really fun group of guys that just didn't want to stop skiing every day (laughs) (laughs) So, which is fine with me. I love to ski. It's and the ski, we've been able to find, despite this, these terrible wind events we've had, we've been able to find good powder skiing and good steep skiing every day. So it's uh, it's been fun and challenging, but I'm tired. I'm definitely definitely tired. Yeah. Um. So 
Okay, basically what happens is you're a doctor and then you stop being a doctor and you go back, resume to your heli guide gig. So when when does that happen? You're you're a you're a you know respectable doctor until when <laughs> in the calendar year? Well, I've done it kind of a few different ways. So you know, I started guiding the same year that I finished residency, and because it wouldn't be compatible with a residency schedule. Residency is really really busy. Like most of my skiing in residency was um, like. I worked night shifts and I'd go skiing during the day, which is not something I recommend necessarily <laughs> from a health standpoint. But, you know, I'd ski for 10 days straight while I did 10 night shifts in a row or something like that. And it was, you know, pretty unhealthy. So, but anyway, I finished residency. And when I finished residency, I started doing what um, is known as locum tenens. It's a Latin word. And basically just it describes doctors in particular who work on a part-time basis or like fill-in basis at various clinics. And my interest in medicine and my training has always been in working in like rural and kind of resource poor settings. It's just, I just find it really interesting and I, I like the challenge of that work. And Alaska is, you know, very, it's like very, very close to my heart. Alaska is a big part of who I am being here. And so I wanted to work in rural Alaska and I was able to find a job um, for the previous four years uh, working on Kodiak Island. And I would work there about, oh, 22 to 25 weeks a year. And most of those were like seven-day weeks where I was taking a lot of call and I was um, in the hospital a lot. And I was delivering babies and working in the ER and working in the inpatient ward in addition to doing a lot of like outpatient kind of primary care stuff. So it was a really busy practice. So I'd stay really busy and put in a ton of hours when I was working. And then I would, the, the other, you know, 31 to 27 weeks a year were mine to do with what I wanted. And uh, some of that time I spent on Kodiak doing stuff there, but most of that time I spent uh, back here basically in Girdwood or this area, South Central Alaska. And so that, that allowed me, that freed up my time to, to ski guide or basically what initial plan was just take the winters off to ski because that was my passion. The ski guiding thing kind of came up during that first winter that I was free to go skiing all the time. My plan that winter actually was to... Um, some friends had bought some, well, I was going to buy some land in Valdez with some friends. We were building a cabin and then we were going to do, I was going to join a, a ski traverse from, um, basically from Whistler up to Alaska and the, with the idea of doing a bunch of skiing along the way, including the Waddington area. I was really excited about this. I was doing preparations for it. I was getting gear together for it, starting to plan out food. And that's when I got the invitation to start working here. And as that started becoming more of a thing, I bailed on the trip. I kind of bailed on the cabin because I was really enjoying heli ski guiding and kind of decided that Girdwood and heli skiing was going to be a big part of my future. And so that, but I, I kind of went in a circle there. But um, that's the doctor thing, basically. That's how I can do what I do. And now I work for a different company um, that uh, provides healthcare in a diff different parts of rural Alaska. Uh, and so I primarily over the last year did the same kind of thing um, in Kotzebue, Alaska, which is uh, north of the Arctic Circle. It's near Nome. They did rod finishes in Nome. Kotzebue is a little bit north of Nome. Um, and so that, that's kind of been my uh, primary workplace. And the same thing, I go up there and I work like 14 days straight, you know, <laughs> working long days or something like that. And then, I, then I'm off for two weeks or three weeks or something like that. And I, I do that up until... Um, January or so, and then I kind of go back to it by mid-May. Yep. <clears throat> I how many how many doctors slash heli guides do you think there are? 
There's at least one other one. Um, uh oh. He works at the, the Tordrillos Mountain Lodge. He's a, um, he's a challenger for the belt. I need to get him on the podcast. Maybe I'll be like, <laughs> screw Paul. Yeah, he might be way, he's probably way cooler. <laughs> he probably is. He's been doing it a lot longer than I have, I think. I didn't know about him until recently, until, like, oh, you know, man. I started doing this, but he's probably way cooler. And I know there's like a cardiologist at one of the CMH lodges in uh, Canada, so, so I've heard. Okay. So there's a couple. Couple, <laughs> couple, couple bits, a uh, couple contenders there. Oh, I'm sure they're way more interesting. Um, yeah, <clears throat> anyway, well, it, it is a pretty interesting thing and watching you always try to like figure out these schedules and blocks of time. And, and I think the other thing uh, sort of to say about you is when you have these like 14 days on being a doctor and then the blocks off, usually we're getting word like, Hey guys, I'm about to go do this, you know, this mission and fill in the <laughs> blank with like, bow hunting slash pack rafting slash biking and we never quite know what's coming up but we we, we, do, <laughs> we right i mean we do our yeah, best to uh to think it's true i have yeah it's true i i do a lot of kind of dumb trips that all of <laughs> mostly in alaska but i travel around and a lot of them end up being pretty silly but a lot of great experiences and that's the cool thing about the schedule it allows yeah. for that there's some sacrifices professionally to do that to be able to do that, but it's it's um it's pretty satisfying when I'm out there, and I do like spending extended periods of time in the wilderness by myself or with one or two other people mm-hmm. uh, any time of year. <laughs> um, and we're gonna we're gonna talk in a bit about um, a new venture that you are uh, about to get um, to get started. Uh, that's very much related to your medical training, but for a second, let's go back to like the sexy world of heli skiing. Um, so you way less sexy than you think. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. Cause normally like when we're, you know, we're talking, it's like, I get the text from you and it's like, dude, dead tired. And then there's like some half, you know, sentence about something and talk, just give me a quickly, like a, a typical day. Like, all right, if we're flying tomorrow, what time are you waking up and what, what are the things you have to do? I mean, like, I think, I think being a heli guide, it's one of those things. If you tell somebody that they're like, oh, I hate you. That's my dream job. I would kill to do that. And it's always easy to kind of just, you know, kind of romanticize whatever the job is and kind of leave out all the actual work that's required to do, you know, some cool or interesting things. So you mean like being a professional ski reviewer or running a ski review site? <laughs> no, that's not at all what I had in mind. But uh, <clears throat> um, yeah, so for you, like, what what time what time are you getting up? If if on a normal day, you know, you're gonna go fly. Uh, yeah, so I I wake up at six and okay. I'm at the at, at the guide meeting by seven. Some of the guys though, like whoever's turn it is to do weather and those kinds of things, they're there significantly earlier. So those guys are going in. 5.30 at the latest. Or, yeah. I'm sorry, 6.30 at the latest. Um, sometimes sometimes earlier, depending on what's going on. And uh, But our guide meeting officially starts at 7. And at that point, each guide is responsible for having um, reviewed all the weather observations. We have we have a weather site that we use, basically, like an in-company weather sheet that we use that summarizes all the weather stations in the area. So each guide is responsible to take a look at that, understand what's going on with the weather, understand the avalanche forecast and have reviewed all the previous day's op notes, like the post-op summaries from 
all the different um, different helicopters and snowcats and whatnot. And so um, there's a fair bit that you sh- you're supposed to do before you get there. Yeah. Um, but we start the meeting at seven. Uh, the, and I can just walk you through the day, basically. Yeah. Um, the meeting, depending on what's going on with all the different dynamic parts of, of being part of a heli ski company, the the weather, the clients, the um, number of helicopters or snowcasts that we're using, the, the avalanche forecast, stability forecast is obviously a big part of the morning discussion. There's a big run discussion that involves using run photos and maps of all the areas that we do. It's, it's a pretty detailed thing, and it's um, a really important part of our day every day. Um, that can go... It, the idea is for that to only take an hour. Sometimes it goes longer, but usually we have like a pretty good sense of what we're doing uh, by eight, and um, and then we start preparing for our day. And so preparing for the day involves you know getting your equipment ready. If there's anything special going on that day, anything different going on that day, making sure that you've um, coordinated with the the fuel truck drivers for the day and they had a nice discussion kind of a pre-day meeting with the pilot to kind of talk about where you're going to go, what the plan is for your fuel cycle and the different th- dynamics of the day. And then uh, as the guide staff, each each helicopter for the day has a lead guide and then um, two or maybe three, so, well, between one and three following guides. And so you have a discussion in your, um, what we call a pod, and you just guide um, on, you just kind of go through the details of the day and make a pretty good plan. You talk about, your um, your operational mindset, which is uh, from a paper that was an ISSW a few years ago, um, we talk about um, runs that we're going to ski, runs we might not ski, contingency plans depending on weather, other dynamics. Um, so there's a lot that goes into it that happens long before the people ever see us. Yeah, it's fairly involved. Sometimes it's stressful. Um, sometimes if there's if there's any question about um, the flyability of the weather, we'll do. Uh, some driving so we'll, we'll jump in the vans we'll we'll drive um pretty far actually to get a look at the clouds you get a look at what's going on um get a sense of the wind we do a lot of we, we have the alaska has a great network of aviation camera sites some in some pretty remote areas and mountain passes so we'll spend a bunch of time looking at those trying to figure out where the clouds are moving or where it's snowing or where it's windy um, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that goes on every morning. And then once we decide to go skiing in a particular spot, um, we'll figure out what time makes sense to pick everybody up. We get the people um, picked up. Um, most of our clients all stay at the Hotel Alyeska, but that's where we meet everybody anyway. So we go pick people up there and then um, bring them either to the hangar or to a remote site where the helicopter is going to come to them. And uh, and then and then we go heli skiing all day, which is you know in its own right a kind of a a job, a production, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's, it's not, a, some, some days it seems like everything just works perfectly and it's awesome. And other days you, you work a little bit harder to give people a really good day. Um, but that's the, that's the pre day basically mm-hmm. the pre skiing part of the day. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> and then I guess I'm curious if, if someone hasn't, hasn't been in a heli before. So this is, this question is not for people that have like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've been to AK or, or BC or something and been in a heli and I kind of get it. But for people who haven't done it, is there kind of a common mistake that people make? Like, are, are people showing up to do it? Cause they've always dreamed about, you know, getting on a heli in AK and they're just showing up with like absolutely the wrong equipment 
or what is the thing where you're like, man, I wish this is kind of just the common mistake or error or um, wrong idea that people have when they show up here and it, I don't know, makes your job uh, tougher or would be something that if they address beforehand, they could improve the experience. Sure. Well, I mean, you asked me a couple different questions. So first of all, I'd say that the the majority of people that we take skiing are repeat customers. Okay. And so most of them, you know, know us, a lot of them know, you know, know us like personally and we know them personally and they show up and we know what they want to do and they know what we want to do. And it's, in that case, it's pretty straightforward. Yep. Um, for the people, like you asked about people who've never heli skied before or never been to Alaska before, we also get, you know, obviously a fair amount of people like that every year too. And it's, it's actually a really fun part of the job, taking people out for their first time. Um, a lot of the things that you might think people, you know, I, I won't use the word like mistakes, but people, things that people don't anticipate or wouldn't know about helicopters or heli skiing or skiing in Alaska gets covered in a pretty comprehensive um, safety briefing that everybody is required to attend. It's about an hour long that they have to do their first day that they show up to ski with us. And so that typically takes, you know, gives people pretty good pretty good basics and then as guides when we have people that we haven't skied with before i think we do our own little mini briefing at the helicopter once we start our day like as we do our beacon check and check the harnesses and everything we could go through a few basics but um i think and i know and ask your question about equipment um we, we as guides do a pretty good job keeping an eye on what kind of equipment people are bringing and if people show up with something like with a pair of skis particularly with skis show up with a pair of skis that don't really seem appropriate for skiing Alaska, we'll usually uh, have a chat with them about considering renting skis uh, either from Aliasco or from us. Yep. To, to get, and, and most, the vast majority of the time, people decide to do that and they have a really good day. And most of the time when people are convinced they want to ski on their current gear that, you know, they're whatever, you know, 8,500 foot or 9,800 foot that they really love where they live at home. Um, usually by the second day, they most of the time decide that they want to try out the fat skis. Yep. Um, um, and usually they still have fun, but they have fun on that equipment. And I think people don't realize just, you know, it's pretty exhausting to ski 20,000 feet of pow, uh, you know, on big long runs on um, skinny skis, especially if you're not somebody who's out there skiing 100 days a year, bell to bell. Yep. So um, so th- that would be it. And then I guess the other thing, I think a lot of people have a sense of um, – of urgency under the blades because it's loud and it seems like you should be moving fast because the helicopter is there. And I think um, as people get more experienced, they learn to to move more deliberately and and slowly around the helicopter, which is uh, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, you've done a bit. Um, if that's some of the brass tacks realities of the kind of day to day. Um, again, um, you know, given that I'm trying to preserve your title of, you know, uh, as contender for most interesting man in the world, uh, you've, uh, you've done a bit of guiding, um, for some films, right? Um, ops coming out to, um, film that's accurate. That's yep, a really yeah, poorly stated question. Yeah. Um, well, the answer is yes. I've been involved in a couple <laughs> different. Um, film projects with um, with uh, professional skiers and snowboarders, and it, it, it. I think if you're asking me like how is it different or, or or how is it a different kind of program than normal heli skiing program? Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, so, so I guess, first of all, I'd say what a normal day is like for those who haven't done it. A, a normal day, we pick you up, we take you out, we, we get you in the helicopter, we get you out in the mountains. And um, we usually start with something, especially if it's your first day and, you know, we haven't skied together before. We start with something to kind of get people's warmed up a little bit. And for us to get a sense of people's, um, quite frankly, get a sense of their skiing ability yep. and to make sure that um, we have an appropriate plan for the day. And then we adjust accordingly based on people's desire and ability. You know, sometimes really good skiers want to keep it mellow, and that's totally fine. Um, what's not as okay is the people who aren't as aren't as technically strong of uh, skiers and riders want to do some, want to ski steeps. Usually, they they get convinced pretty quickly that um, you know, we can find a movie that they want to ski. But usually, that's the kind of stuff that they have the most fun anyway. And we have all kinds of awesome long, you know, moderate angle to steep, um, fun, accessible terrain. Um, that is appropriate for that kind of thing. And then we also have all like the, the really fun, big, steep terrain that um, it's experienced uh, Alaskan type skiers with good fitness and, um, and strong skill sets really enjoy. And that, you know, that's always, a, that's always really fun too. And I enjoy all of it actually. I mean, yeah. I love doing the steeps, but I also love those like 3000 foot power runs and I love the cruisy rollovers and I love, it's just all super fun. So you do that basically you ski, you know, and, you ski a morning. We set down someplace on the glacier, usually, or on a on a nice calm ridge. If the wind's not um, not blowing, or it's nice out, we have a nice lunch. We have hot soup. We kind of chill out for a little bit. Um, usually, that's the time of day where the helicopter goes back to refill um, on fuel. Um, and then, usually, by the time the helicopter gets back, we're, we're we've had lunch. We're ready to ski, and we ski through the afternoon. And we, um, you know, we start bumping home at the end of the day. And most of the time, we're skiing in that like eighteen thousand vertical foot range. We, we don't do it based on run. I'd say, you know, the average day is probably uh, eight or nine runs, something like that, maybe 10 runs, but um, some days less, some days more, depending on where we are. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, I just, yeah, I just skied with one of my favorite groups of the year and, um, you know, we did 140,000 feet in seven days, um, mostly like good powder skiing, a lot of fun, sluffy, steep skiing. And, uh, you know, those guys, it's so fun going with them because they, at the end of the week, you know, especially this year, they were like, this was, this was one of the greatest weeks of our lives. This is definitely the highlight of our whole year. We can't wait to come back. Like they're almost already. And then when I see them, like I saw them this morning, I went to, over to say goodbye. They're already kind of in the like stage of withdrawal. So, like you <laughs> see, people have like massive endorphin releases for long periods of time. It's kind of like a drug. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but, um, so that's, that's kind of a, so that was a long answer to what a normal day of skiing is like. And so the, the film crew skiing, you know, this, I've probably done three or four projects with different companies. Um, and there's always two guides. And so, um, you know, it's never like I'm not running the show, but um, there's always two guides on those things. And then the athletes, depending on their experience level, especially in Alaska, um, can, you know, weigh in a lot on, on what they want to do and where and how they want to ski and what they're looking for. Um, and then, of course, you know, a big part of our job is to give them seasonal and local and uh, temporal information about what's going on with the snowpack and what aspects are skiing well and which you know, we have a massive massive terrain area that extends from the Talkeetna Mountains which are like a almost continental snowpack to like the high Chugach north of here which is um, can be a completely different snowpack depending on the year which are like big long runs above huge glaciers then we have all the coastal kind of stuff around Girdwood in the National Forest which is just a huge variety of terrain from tree runs to big alpine runs to huge glaciers 
and then we have all the stuff down at Seward on the Gulf Coast, which is the whole other game. So depending on what's going on at a certain time, what the film crews want to do, you know, got to figure out what area you're going to go to, and then uh, and then it always depends. Like sometimes, um, you know, I I gauge I gauge it a lot based on how much I get to go skiing. <laughs> um, I always try to be the guide who's on the ridge with the athletes because that's the guy who skis the most. Because the yeah. other guy does the helicopter. Yep. Uh, and I always want to be the one who gets to ski the most. And I get to ski a lot. Some of the most fun terrain I ski all year is with those with those guys sometimes. But um, uh, it totally depends on, on the program. Sometimes it'll be a lot of setup and a, a lot of waiting and a few runs. Sometimes you're cranking out runs. You know, you're cranking out 800-foot runs, and I get to ski down every time too. So it varies a lot. Um, and a lot of our role there, besides like the kind of consultation role I mentioned earlier, is just to be there in case something goes wrong, in case somebody has a bad crash or, yeah. or you know, need some help, loses a ski. I mean, th- those are the things that are more common, right? Somebody loses some equipment and you go down and help them find it or get it to them or get them out of a tough spot if they don't have their skis on or something. But, um, but it, it's different. It's fun. It's interesting. It's, it's really, it's, sometimes it's really inspiring watching how well they ski. Um, the, the thing with the athletes, some of them that have been here to Alaska a lot, uh, can come into a zone, look around, immediately pick out appropriate runs for what they want to do, fly up there, know where they are and do it. And it's really impressive to watch, um, those folks cause they're, they're like, they're, they're as, as good or better at skiing in, in Alaska than like anybody. They, they just know what they're doing. But that's, I would say that's almost the minority um a lot of them you know a lot of people are really incredible athletes but it's kind of a different stage here and i think it takes people a little while to to adjust to the scale um sometimes to adjust the the slough which can be a a real factor in choosing a line and skiing it well um and then the scale you know trying to figure out like how big that cliff is when you're looking at it from you know a mile away across a glacier and then the other thing is um a lot of the the steepest skiing up here has these big blind rollovers and I've never been anywhere where there's big blind rollovers like there are in the Chugach and it's really disoriented when you look at this run you're like I want to ski that line and then you get landed on the ridge and the helicopter does a couple rotations after you look at your line and it's a little bit disorienting and then you land on this ridge and then all you have is this like blank thing that rolls over and it feels like you're just going to fall off the edge of the world and you see this little dot of a helicopter way down in the glacier and you're like, oh man, where, where do I go now? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and, and you know, and a lot of times, some some guys are just really good at figuring out where they are. Um, and sometimes there's a lot of help from the from the guides or the filmers, or photographers on the ground, talking people into stuff. Um, but the, and I know I'm going on for a long time, but the most important thing I'd like I want to say about the film stuff is that that people don't realize people come up here all the time and they always say like hey i want they sometimes even know the names of the runs or the zones that the athletes ski somehow yeah but what people often don't realize is that those movies like those segments that we watch that are so awesome and so inspiring a lot of times those athletes are here for two three four weeks or longer they're spending tens of thousands of dollars of their own money of heli time and everything else Sometimes they come up here for that and spend all that money and all that time. They never get one day like that. And a lot of the segments, at least that I've been involved in, you know, they're here for weeks. They're they're spending a lot of money. They're flying around. They're trying to find good skiing. And then like one afternoon or like two or three afternoons, it'll click. And the whole segment, the whole Alaska segment for that year will all go down in like two or three sunny afternoons. 
Mm-hmm. And I think um, and that's the deal. Like heli skiing in Alaska is a big gamble, right? And you can just kind of win the jackpot, show up for one day, have it be perfect, perfect stability, perfect weather, everything's perfect, and you just go out and kill it. But uh, more than likely, the the whole film segment takes place in one or two afternoons or three afternoons while they're here. And all those other days and all the other money they spent is basically waiting for it to line up. Yeah. And so when, when people come up to go heli skiing and they're really excited about doing the kind of stuff they see in the movies, um, I think a lot of times that, that isn't clear in mm-hmm. the, uh, you don't see that part of the movies. You don't see those guys sitting on a, um, you know, sitting in their hotel room for two or three weeks spending lots of money, paying lots of minimums to the helicopter company, helicopter ski company, you know, watching their their bank account drain while they're not getting the footage, while they're just flying around trying to find stuff. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, when, if, when you come up to go skiing in Alaska, sometimes it lines up perfectly and you hit the jackpot and you go out and you do exactly what you had in mind. Um, but it's like any gamble, you know, to stack the odds in your favor, you spend as much time as you can and, you know, put in the effort and, uh, uh, you know, eventually it'll pan out, but the people, I think people oftentimes forget just, or don't, aren't aware of just how much time and energy and money it goes into getting those lines that we all see in the movies and are just so blown away by. Right. Right. No, that makes sense. The windows, um, the work, the work to catch the windows. I mean, those guys spent a, they spent a lot of time and an effort to get that stuff. And yeah. so, you know, your average day heli skiing is going to be an amazing experience. And people tell me almost every day that it was, you know, one of the best days of their life. Mm-hmm. But, um, but people who come up and think that, you know, and with the idea in mind that they're going <clears> to <throat> ski the kind of line, you know, they're going to ski some big sunny spine that's going to be perfect. Yeah. Um, that, that idea is pretty unlikely to happen. Uh, just kind of showing up, uh, you know, for, for a few days of skiing. So it's tough. You never know. You know it's just like, it's like any, any gamble, but, um, but that, yeah. that's probably the biggest takeaway from the movies. I think that I bet people would find interesting when you were, um, let's see if I can get you to name a name or two. When you were talking about how impressive it is to see, you, you were mentioning that occasionally, and it's the exception, right? But occasionally you'll see an athlete come up and they'll kind of just know exactly what they want to do and where to go. Um, who are one or two of the folks who you've seen that and just thought like, man, that's just impressive. I think the most, the most dialed person I've um, worked with was Cody Townsend. I mean, he, he showed up um, for a, a matchstick shoot where they had about three weeks allocated to, um, to skiing with us. And uh, the first day out, it was pretty clear that he was, the group leader of the athletes, he was kind of a mentor to the other guys in the group and, uh, just knew, you know, he knew what he was looking at when we flew in the valley. He knew what he was looking for. And when he found it, he knew what he was going to do. And when he got to the top of the ridge, he knew where to go. And he is, this, it was pretty darn impressive. Um, and I can't remember which movie it was. It was the, it was the one they did over two years, but there was some just amazing Alaskan footage in there mm-hmm. and, uh, from, from Cody. And he, he definitely, knows his way around the big mountains. Good for Cody. <clears throat> Hate that guy. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, let's, um, okay, enough of the sexy world of, of heli skiing uh, and guiding for 
goddamn Cody Townsend. Um, but uh, just kidding. Cody Townsend, friend of the podcast. We love Cody. Um, but let's go back to the – we'll bounce back to the, the medical stuff. Um, talk a little bit about um, – since I just don't – I don't want people to think that you're just the, you know, the sort of some, you know – carefree, happy-go-lucky, partying, heli guide, right? So we have to quickly veer back into, you know, real serious matters here. But um, talk about this venture that you've got going um, and are starting, what, I, I presume in like maybe in a few weeks or something? Is that your time frame? Uh, end of April. I mean, end of April. Yeah, I think calling it a <laughs> calling it a venture might be optimistic. That makes it sound like it's going to be some... Uh some successful business project, but, um, I have high hopes for you, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, the, I think a big, big part of my life, obviously, since I I was a little kid was playing doing outdoor stuff. And obviously I have a, a, a lot of passion and experience in the medical world. And, uh, it seems like there's a, at least here in Alaska, there's a, um, um, a bit of a, a gap in the uh, wilderness medicine kind of education realm. And I think there's a lot of people who'd be interested in coming to Alaska to, to, to learn some of that stuff. And I'm interested in learning a lot more about it myself. Uh, and so um, I, I'm going to start doing advanced wilderness life support courses and then hopefully offering other levels of uh, wilderness medicine education uh, here here in Alaska. And part of it is, I mean, there's obviously the professional side of it. I mean, a big part of it's going to be focused toward, at least especially with the initial stuff, will be focused toward people who are already medical professionals who want to gain kind of the wilderness medicine skills. Um, but but my goal is is to expand in Alaska um, wilderness medical education also for people who are, you know, recreational users, for example, or other people who are professionals in the outdoor industry who are, you know, doing their woofers and things like that. Um, woofer stands for Wilderness First Responder, WFR, or uh, Wilderness EMT and that kind of stuff and expand curriculum and educational opportunities for that group. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's this whole thing's getting more attention in the snow sports world, which I think is a good thing that, yes, it's good to take an avalanche course, but it's also really important and, uh, or it's, I would, I think almost equally important to have um, a good understanding of how to take care of someone if they're sick or hurt in a wilderness setting, whether that's related to snow sports or summer sports or whatever. Um, and so I think there's a lot of, there's a gap to fill there and I'd like to get involved in addressing that. I'd also like to do some kind of, to, to do it in some fun ways, like to offer some trips that involve some skiing as well, or some trips that involve other types of outdoor recreation um, here in Alaska. Cause there's, obviously a lot of cool opportunities up here and I've been really fortunate to see a lot of the state and do a lot of, um, a lot of wilderness adventures up here. And I think that'd be cool to put those two things together. So we'll see. I think, I think it could be a really neat thing. We actually did a podcast. Um, it was, I don't know, a couple months ago or something. Um, but on, uh, woofer courses and yeah. sort of trying to hit this thought that, I mean, that was kind of the whole premise of the conversation that we're kind of in a mode where many of us are like, oh yes, of course, I should have at least done an AVI one course if I'm going into the backcountry, And of course I'm going to carry AVI gear. Um, but then like for a lot of us, we go mountain biking and sometimes they're getting pretty 
you know, deep um, uh, into the wilderness and nobody's talking about what kind of medical training do you have, right? And so I think that's just something that, you know, in that conversation, which I was really proud of, we got some really good people on there talking about it, but I think it's just another level of uh, awareness um, that it, like you said, I mean, it would be good. Like, let's let's not fall into a safe, uh, a false assumption of safety, because it's like, yeah, I got my AVI gear and I, I took an AVI course. Um, what happens when shit goes south? You know, then how prepared are you? Yep. No, I think that's really valid. I mean, I um, I would go so far as to say that I think all responsible backcountry recreationists should have some type of like rudimentary at least um first aid or wilderness medicine type of education i think it's i think we owe it to our friends and uh, you know and i guess on the flip side you know you think about how, how terrible you'd feel if <laughs> something happened and you didn't feel like you know you had the necessary skills to to address it and so i think um i think you're right i think you're i think that podcast was, was great it's really cool to, to bring awareness to that kind of thing and uh, i think especially since there's so much more interest in uh, wilderness travel and yeah. just general kind of backcountry recreation, summer and winter, uh, that it's you know becoming more and more of, a, of an important thing for people to kind of kind of work on. And I think I think we can address that in Alaska. I've got some cool ideas for it. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what you continue to do, and I can't wait for you to actually find a name for this. You got to come <laughs> up with a name. It'll so. probably sound pretty boring, Jonathan. Despite um, <laughs> your assertions that I'm interesting, I'm, I'm a pretty boring guy. Well, we can uh, <clears throat> maybe we can hash this out off air, and uh, we'll find uh, we'll find that that thrilling, memorable name for your for your for your new venture, which I'm going to continue. Yeah, to well, hey, you'll be you'll be probably like the second or third person to know if I come up with a name. Okay. So. Okay. Um, <laughs> we should get going. Uh, soonish here, but I'm gonna. I gotta because this is this is kind of like housekeeping business for Blister. But um, you know, couple questions that I've wanted to ask you about. Um, we can kind of try to do this a little bit rapid fire. But um, one of the things that it's been fun in the last couple of years is Paul and I have both started um, reviewing some of the same boots at the same time. Like we did this with the Solomon Mountain Lab. Mm. And I and we're doing it. I think right now, um, both with an Alpine boot, the Head Raptor 140 RS. Yep. I, I've been putting time in that boot. Have you Have you been out in it yet? I have. I um, because I've pretty much only been heli skiing for like yeah. the last two weeks. I um, was kind of sticking with uh, with a boot that. Well, actually, it's a, a new version of a boot that I knew well. I have the new the next year Solomon um, uh, X Max 130. Okay, and so, but the shell and the and the vo- internal volume is pretty much exactly the same as my old X Max 130s. Yeah, and it's been really really cold up here lately, and so didn't want to deal with boots that might cause my toes to get more frozen than they already were getting. Yeah, so I put my old liners in those. I tried the new liners in the Solomons; they're nice liners. But I swapped out to um, to my old Intuition liners that were my old X Maxes, and I've been kind of skiing those for most of my work for the last three weeks, but. I did. Um, I did set up the the heads, and I got the um, uh, the sole or the um, the soles routed down so I can use the rubber soles because I want a rubber sole boot for heli skiing if possible. Yep. And um, 
skied them today for the first time, and I like them. Okay. Okay. I had to some. do a six toe punch. Took a little work, um, but but I'm I'm dialing them in, and I think they're gonna. I actually think they're gonna be a really nice boot for me. Yeah. <clears throat> um. Yeah. Interesting. I've I think I've got like seven or eight days in them so far, and um, yeah, I've been. I just thought that was a boot that I was like as like two rate two race boot. Don't really care. Don't you know didn't think it was kind of my bag per se. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm off to a very good start in that thing. Um, I, and have done no work to it. I, I did a little bit of a grind on the liner, um, mm-hmm. but a very, very quick adjustment. And, uh, that liner seems to be kind of breaking in better and better for me. So anyway, we can talk more about that one cool. <clears throat> as, yep, you, well, you, sure. as you get more time in it. Um, yep. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, because um, you basically stole the 194, 194 centimeter forefront Devastator, because you, <laughs> cause you live in Alaska and like we all basically just have to come take it pride from your cold dead hands or something. Um, <laughs> but I actually just started putting time this last weekend on the 184 I Devastator. I saw that. And, yeah, I, um, that's cool. And so, but I wanted, I, I wanted to, I guess I could go back and read your review, um, but what fun would that be? But, uh, I mean, you've talked a big game about that ski and, and, uh, you still really like that ski in the 194, correct? I do like that ski. Yep. And, and you're, you're willing to say that like in the 194, that is like, you're not finding a speed limit on that ski, even in like crud and kind of variable snow. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, um, pretty chargy ski. Okay. <laughs> it goes, and I mean, I think for me, one of the things that that gives me the confidence to be able to go really fast on a ski, especially in you know a little bit more variable conditions, yeah, is yeah. having the confidence that I can shut it down really fast. Yep. And I feel like the Devastator is a well balanced ski in that sense. Like you can, it'll it'll it you know it has good suspension, especially for a fully rockered ski. It mows stuff down. It crushes through the the crud and the chop, as well as um, skis that I've as well as skis, skis of similar weight that have that have a you know tetanol layer in them. But it uh, something about that profile it allows it to shut them down quick. Yeah, I really like it, and that makes me feel like I can go real fast on that ski. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, the <clears throat> kind of, um, I've, I've only got two days on it now, but, um, I have to say, I just thought like, I'm not interested in that 194. It's a super heavy ski. The 194, like art, like might be literally the heaviest ski we've ever reviewed at blister. And I just thought, you know, I spent a lot of time skiing at Taos and kind of steeper, tight terrain, lots of moguls, decent amount of trees. And I just mm-hmm. thought like, yeah, I, I'm not interested. Um, that 184 has me thinking like, I think I would take the 194 even for Taos. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've been surprised at how sort of dead easy category it is. And, mm-hmm. and I'm still, I think, figuring out this ski, but I'm, I'm actually not yet able or willing to just kind of go nuke around on it 
Um, so just been a little bit surprising so far, right? Like that 194, I just thought like, nope. And now I'm kind of like, if you made me pick right now, which, which one would I personally go for? I think I'd take the 194. And, you know, so anyway, I wish I'd... Yeah, no, I'm with you. It, it, you know, the, the biggest thing about the 194 that you notice is, is the swing weight. It's a, it, that ski has some, like, some inertia uh-huh. <laughs> once it gets moving and it quite a bit to, to swing. I mean, it just t- it's a little bit more work than... You know, even the ski like the 193 Cochise, just the Cochise for some reason feels lighter when you're tossing it around. That's but interesting. The, um, but the Devastator, I, I have more confidence skiing fast than the Devastator. Huh. Interesting. <clears throat> well, then maybe the conclusion or punchline here is just that, because like honestly, I you know I have skied the 193 um, Cochise, and I that was a ski I just thought I'm totally happy on the 185. Like yep. that blend of quickness and stability, I, you know, going to the bigger ski, I felt like I threw that kind of balance off, at least for me, right? Like bigger yep. people or people skiing in open terrain would, might feel very differently about the 193. But yep. so really maybe what we're in is like, yep, when you bump to the 194 Devastator, like you bump up, but, well, that, but that 184, yeah. man, I'm, I'm just like. You do not need to be strong to ski that thing whatsoever. Well, I think that's kind of the paradoxical thing about like fully rockered skis, though, is that yeah. when you've got them bases flat and you're pivoting and and moving around, yeah, the swing weight's kind of high, but it's also got a bit of a forward mount um, yep. compared to the Cochise. Yeah, and so you're yep. swinging that ski around, and while they're the tips and tails, you feel them; they're heavy. The um, there's not a, there's not like edge or camber that's working against you at all. Like you right. can just pivot that ski, and I'm sure that I'm sure the 184 is super pivoty when the bases are flat. Yeah, but like, then when you're yeah, and and the, and the caveat that I gave, and the same thing I said in that um, that recent vocal review on the the um, 108 with those fully rockered skis, you this, when you get stability out of them is when you have them on edge. Yeah, and when you have that 194 Devastator tipped over, you've got like you know, I don't know, 180 centimeters of yeah. edge contact of, of like really heavy edge contact, and so I think that's I think that's kind of the fun paradoxical thing about skis like that. And the, the trade off is is that if you're a person who likes to you know go ski bases flat and um, you know ski long flat fast flat runs across groomers and stuff. They do get a little nervous because your, yep. your contact patch is is minimal, and I'm sure that 184 feels like that yeah, a lot. Even the sure. 190 feels like that a little bit, yeah. and so um, that's that's the trade off. If that's you know, and for me, I I am kind of biased toward liking, especially in that that waist width category, that kind of 108 and up. I, I there's a lot of fully rocker skis when done right that I like, mm-hmm. and so I and I think the Devastator is a good example of that. Yep. Um, <clears throat> interesting. Well, yeah, I really want to ski that 194. So apparently I have to fly to Girdwood if I'm ever going to do that since you won't like <laughs> ship it back to us. Well, the other funny thing about that ski is that we got that ski mounted, uh, with marker plates. It already had two mounts prior to that. Oh, that's right. Uh, as I learned, and the marker plates were almost a full centimeter shifted to the right on both skis. Uh, and yeah. so... <laughs> so I mounted it with my own my own bindings because I was tired of that weird yeah that weird mount thing. So 
right. So that's going to be a further factoring. <laughs> this is, you did that on purpose, just so like I literally, my own yeah, just so I could never ski this thing. All right, I've, I've got to start a quest uh, to get on oh, the 194s. Yeah. Um, hey, come on up, play skiing, you can ski the Devastators, it'll be great. Right, right. Um, last question then, and people can stop listening to this at this point, I don't care, but we're going to talk, um, because you haven't turned in your deep dive yet on the Vocal 108, um, I'm getting a lot of questions actually about the Vocal 108 versus the Solomon QST 106. Hmm, interesting. That's the end of my question. So like, talk, I mean... Talk. Give me a couple notes about. Are you are you kind of like man? These skis are just totally apples to oranges, or do nope, you feel like no. there's more overlap um, between? Well, them? I mean, I mean, by I think by intent from the companies, they're pretty similar, right? They're they're yeah. pretty light. They're um they're not like crazy light carbon touring construction. I think both skis that you'll see people mount touring bindings on, and they're both skis you'll see people mount alpine bindings on, and. uh um, but I think that's, I think while their design kind of idea is similar, I think that's kind of where the similarities end on those skis. Yeah. The, to me, I ski faster and more confidently on the 108 period. Like if I'm going out, um, and just shredding around Alaska and trying to ski fast and, um, you know, jump off stuff and go faster through tight spots or whatever. And, and in the open areas, I'll, I'll, I have more fun on the 108, uh, the, the Solomon is better in PAL for sure. Like um, I've, I've had the opportunity to ski that ski in some really fun untracked soft PAL. And it's for 100, 600 foot, that ski is really fun in PAL. Really intuitive, really fast. And it's a it's a great ski on groomers. And it's, a, it's not a bad ski at all, like for all mountain stuff. But I'm kind of biased toward that 108. It just uh, feels more intuitive and predictable to me. And when I put that ski over on edge, on hard snow, just like I was talking with the Devastator, I get a lot of ski. And that um, Solomon is, you know, the, the the edge length of that ski is basically where that early tip taper and rocker starts. And that ends there. There's no way you're getting any more out of that ski, even if you, you know, tip it way over. You're not getting any more um, edge or stability out of that ski. And uh, uh, to me, that that's a, it's a big deal. It's also... Um, while the Solomon has a little more pop, and uh, it's certainly a real fun, playful ski, as for being in tight spots and variable snow, um, I feel like I can um, uh, kind of skid that um, vocal around in those tight spots a little bit easier with a little less effort. And I think that's partly because of that full rocker profile. Okay. Um, <clears throat> in terms of... So, and by the way, you're skiing the 188, 188 centimeter Solomon QST 106 and the 189 centimeter Vocal 108. You know, we're going to get into that question of like, should people be, how to think about going to the dropping down to the 181 centimeter QST 106? Who should drop down to the 181 Vocal 108? I mean, are you... Do you feel like the in terms of like the lengths of these skis, they feel comparable? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. And I it's and strangely enough, I would put those skis 
in lengthwise, I think they're really comparable. And I would put them in the category of like the 185 Cochise. Like if you're a 185 Cochise person, I don't think you'll have any trouble having fun on a 108, 189 or a, yeah. um, or a QST 106, 188. I yeah. think that they don't ski, you know, they're, they're pretty light skis. They're not super stiff. Um, they, um, I, I think that I'd be surprised if people err on the side of sizing down on those skis. I think, you know, kind of go, go with your gut, like what, what size seems like it makes sense or con- compared to what you're skiing on now. And, um, I don't think that'll be too big of a deal. So yeah. So, yeah, so punchline is you, you aren't ready or you're not going to be quick to caution people like careful. The 188 actually feels like a lot of ski in these situations. No. So, okay. Would yeah. not say that. No, it's that's, I mean, they're both, they're both nice skis. They're both quick. They're both intuitive skis that you get on and, and you start skiing on them. You're like, yep, I, I can ski on the ski. Neither one of them requires any kind of adjustment period. You know, either one you click into and you're like, okay, I can ski the ski. Um, for me, I just felt like I got a little more confidence out of the 108, which I was really surprised by, especially yeah. looking at it with weird construction. Yeah. Um, interesting. Okay. Those, uh, the housekeeping questions are done. Um, <clears throat> so, um, yeah, man. Well, good to talk, and um, I'm glad we finally, I'm glad we finally got you on, and uh, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll let the we'll let the listeners decide, you know, if I need to go. Where was the Where was the other doc? Not not at CMH, not the cardiologist at CMH, but I'm gonna the other doc, heli guide slash doctor. Oh yeah, he's at the Tordrillos Mountain Lodge. Okay, I got to talk to him, and we'll you know, I want to. I don't. This could be a new. Know. A new random review on Blister, right? Like rank the three doctor heli guides in the world, and you know we'll see we'll see how you come out in the in the most oh, interesting I'm, man in the world I'm contest. Sure, I'm, I'm dead last, <laughs> no doubt about it. I'm sure anyone who's listened to this, if they made it past the first twenty minutes, would probably agree. <laughs> <laughs> we now have it on tape. We have, we have evidence. Um, well, cool, man. Uh, it was fun to talk and. Um, We'll do it again soon. And you actually, what you have, you have a day or two off now. You're just gonna what play? I had play the day off. And it was it was wonderful. Um, <laughs> I think I think I'm. I mean, I love going heli skiing, and I I'm, I'm really into. It. I, I was just tired and needed to catch up on life stuff. But um, I think uh, yeah, I think I could probably take another day off this week, and I might do it tomorrow. Cool, cool. Well, enjoy. Fun to talk. Um, we'll look forward to reading more of your stuff on the site. And, um, yeah, keep all those people safe out there that you're guiding around those big mountains. Thanks, Jonathan. We'll do. All right, man. Talk to you later. Hi, buddy. Have a good night. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Many thanks to Paul Forward for the conversation and to our strikingly handsome audio engineer, Justin Bob, who recently sent it big at the Taos Freeride Comp. Way to go big, J-Bob, and refusing to play it safe. Until next time, head over to blisterreview.com to see what we're up to there. And now I am off to Aspen for the World Cup Finals, where I'm hoping that they'll still let me in as an alternate for the men's downhill. Fingers crossed.